welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, I've asked John to just share a little ditty for us as we begin the teaching. So, John, if you would, um, take it away. playing that on Christmas Eve night. Uh, no, I'm joking. He won't be playing that on Christmas Eve. Uh, I wanted to set that up uh, for, for our teaching this morning, which um, I want to begin with a question. And the question is this. Is that idea of I'll fly away like a biblical concept? Um, so, of course, we're talking about uh, post-death reality. So uh, what happens when we die? Do we fly away to some distant land also known as heaven? Um, or... And if so, where does it come from? Um, if it's not a biblical idea or if it's not uh, what the Bible teaches, then how have we gotten here? I would suggest that the vast majority of Christians, when you ask them, like, what happens after you die? People say, well, if you know Jesus, you go to heaven. And that's kind of the end of the story. And um, we, we're in this, this series called Lost in Translation. So we've been working through passages in the scripture that are sometimes hard to understand or maybe have been misinterpreted. And I would submit to you that this one that we'll read in just a moment, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is one of the most misinterpreted passages of all times. Um, I talked a little bit about this two weeks ago when we talked about um, one will be taken, one will be left behind from the Gospels. And um, while it's similar in in subject, it's different um, because I want to talk about this passage in particular because it really gets at Something that I think is very common in the scriptures where the authors will talk about something or say something that has to do with something that everybody would have known in their context and culture, but for us, sometimes we got to do a little digging, all right? So uh, this is where we're headed this morning, our final teaching in this series in Lost in Transit. So I'm, I'm entitling this message, I'll Fly Away, Ellipsis, or Maybe Not. Because it is my conviction that this is, in fact, a very inaccurate view of the afterlife. I think that the Bible teaches something far different from it. And some of you have asked, like, Micah, what exactly are you saying? And so I wanted to take this morning and basically tell you what it is that I'm saying about this, because I haven't said it all in one teaching. So for all those old gospel hymns, this one included, I'm sorry for what's about to happen. Um, Because while they may be musically beautiful and interesting and nostalgic. I think some of them, that one in particular, is theologically completely and totally and utterly incorrect. So, are you ready? Okay. You all look like you're ready to shoot flaming arrows at me. <laughs> like, I saw the, uh, the, the Hunger Games yesterday, actually. Katniss Everdeen, baby. Woo! And PETA, right? Come on, PETA. And who's, okay, all the PETA fans out there, raise your hands. All the Gale fans out there, raise your hands. Ah, oh, okay, a few of you. Yeah, well, it's an interesting way. Oh, okay, here we go. 
So um, I want to I want to tackle this with a couple of questions, three questions that will hopefully guide our time and, and get us deeper and deeper into this topic. So the first question is this: Where does "I'll fly away" come from in the scriptures? Right. So if you have your Bibles, First Thessalonians four. I'll ask you to stand, and we'll read the scriptures, and then we will jump right in. Paul says this to the church of Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, are left, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me. God, as we gather uh, as your church, I'm grateful, I'm so grateful, thankful, um, to be able to do this with freedom and uh, with an authentic desire to know more about you. Um, we give you thanks for this space that we can do it. We give you thanks for this community that is much bigger than and much more than this space. And we thank you that you are here with us, that where we gather, um, you are. So I pray that like Jacob, you would um, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, that we would awake to the fact that you are in this place and we may not even be aware of it. So I pray, God, today that new things would come, new ways of seeing you. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so if you read this passage from 1 Thessalonians, where it says, we will, you know, the, 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 those who are uh, alive or dead in Christ will be resurrected. Those who are alive in Christ will be caught up with him in the clouds. If you pair this with another passage that Paul talks about, where he says, when we're absent in the body, we're, we're present with the Lord. It, it, it becomes quite clear, easy to understand where this belief comes from. It's not a stretch to say, oh, okay, I get that, right? But I want to suggest that we have to read the biblical authors in their context. When Paul writes a letter to the, to the church in Thessalonica, he's not writing in a vacuum. He's writing with all kinds of assumptions and all kinds of preconceived ideas that are absolutely at play for the people who would have received this letter. And so when Paul says this, I think he's actually getting at something else. He's not necessarily saying that we'll be caught up in the air and evacuated from earth to some other place called heaven, but he's doing something very different than that. Is it possible that Paul is tapping into something cultural, something that's already at play? Maybe. Well, let's ask, do any of the other biblical authors do this? Do we find this anywhere else in scripture? Like, do we have ground to stand on uh, with that idea? If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. And as you do, I will mention a, a guy by the name of Ethelbert Stauffer. <laughs> Drop the mic, walk away. Ethelbert Stauffer, what a name. This guy, he was a, a, a theologian and a historian. And what he did was study the ancient Roman coins, or the, 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 the money of the ancient Roman world. Now, if you have a dollar bill, take out, take out a dollar bill. If you have one in your pocket, take it out. You'll note that dollar bills or the currency of a, of a people often have things that will get you to the ethos and DNA of the community or the group of people that prints the money. So in, in every coin, on every coin, it says e pluribus unum. Does anybody know what that means? 
from many come one, right? Many, sort of the, the melting pot idea that we become this one nation. On the dollar bill, you have two Latin phrases. One of them is enuit coeptus or something like that. I'm not, I don't do Latin very well. Um, which means providence favors our undertakings. Interesting that this is what some of the original authors of, of uh, our country thought, that providence favors our undertakings, whether you agree or not. That's what it means. And then right underneath it, it says, uh, Nuovos Ordo Seclorum, which means the new order of the ages. So on money is like the spirit of a people at times. And this guy, Ethelbert Stauffer, realized this, and so he started studying the coins and the things that were written in the ancient Roman world for all to see. Here are a couple of things that he found. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. There is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. This is Roman world, right? On the coins, printed on, on you know, statues in the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. In uh, 6 BC, they found an, an inscription in the empire that said, Augustus has been sent to us a savior. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of of the gospel, the good news, the evangelion. Acts chapter 4 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under which, under heaven given by men which we must be saved. You know the message, Acts chapter 10, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of the peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. This is Paul in the book, or Luke in the book of Acts. This is Paul in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Do you see what's happening here? Maybe you don't. I'll tell you. Found in the ancient Roman world are these phrases. No one can be saved, saved, uh, what, what, what was it? Um, under Salvation can be found in no other name save Augustus. There is no other name in which one can be saved. Paul and the writers of the New Testament are co-opting politically charged language and they're using it in a different way. They're taking the propaganda of the empire and they're essentially saying something new. I mean, coming on the heels of the Hunger Games, it couldn't be any more perfect. These are propos, guys, right? If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. So they're actually taking language that's common to the, to the empire and switching it up, changing the nature of it, which is a direct confrontation to the empire, to Rome. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So if this is true, then what might Paul be doing in 1 Thessalonians with this kind of language of being caught up in the clouds? I would argue that Paul has tapped into biblical narratives that the Jews would know, as well as cultural narratives that everybody in the empire would know. The biblical narratives that he's tapping into in 1 Thessalonians 4 are Sinai and Daniel chapter 7. You guys remember Charlton Heston? You remember this? When he goes up onto the mountain, what happens? Thunder, lightning, loud noises, trumpets, right? Exodus uh, Exodus 19, I think it is, where Moses receives the law. So the coming of the law of God's people comes with trumpets and loud noises, So when God comes to the people, it comes with trumpets and loud noises. He's also tapping into Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the Son of Man. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, the people, the saints, the people of the saints most high in Daniel 7 are vindicated over their enemies and being raised up with Jesus, who comes on the clouds and sits in the clouds with power and, and ushers in his kingdom, which is what Daniel 7 is about. So what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians is, essentially, those of you who are Christians in the empire who maybe are being persecuted, you will be vindicated when Jesus comes. It will be like Daniel 7 when he comes on the clouds. So there are these two narratives that he's tapping into. But then maybe most interestingly, when the empire would go out and they would conquer new lands and the emperor would go with them or representatives of the emperor would go out and... and and, and, the, and lead the army, when they would come back, they would talk about the good news from Rome, the Evangelion from Rome, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. The people of the city would go out to meet the emperor with trumpets and fanfare, not to be evacuated somewhere else to some other place, but actually to usher the king back into the city where his rule and reign is manifest. So the fact that the believers might go out to meet Jesus the king does, has nothing to do with being evacuated to another world, but rather I would suggest that what Paul's doing is tapping into a narrative that everybody already knows about the way in which Rome would go out to meet the emperor after he conquered a new land and usher him back into the city, which is sort of the epicenter of his kingdom and his rule and his reign. So... To further uphold this, if you look at Revelation chapter 21, if you have at the end of your Bibles, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, we get this picture of this exact image. Revelation 21, verse 1, there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This is a, a quote from Exodus and Deuteronomy, where God says that he will tabernacle among his people. So it's not that the people are evacuated somewhere else, but actually that God's kingdom rule and reign comes to earth and happens here. Which leads me to maybe a second question. What does resurrection affirm in relation to life after death? So if, when Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians that the people will be caught up in the clouds, what he's really referencing is that God's kingdom, the rule and reign of God, will be coming here to earth as it is in heaven, right? This is Jesus' prayer in Matthew. Then what does the resurrection of Jesus affirm as it relates to life after death? Because if what happens after we die is that we get evacuated somewhere else, it actually has nothing to do with resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus is like the linchpin. It's the most important part of the whole thing. So what does the resurrection affirm as it relates to life after death? If you look at John chapter 20, we find Mary who goes to a, she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. And when she finally recognizes it's him, she hugs him. She holds Jesus. In John 21, Thomas touches the body of Jesus. Peter eats breakfast with Jesus. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. He says, I am not a ghost. He eats fish with them in their presence. Jesus dies on a cross. He pays for the sins of the world. 
But then in victory over sin and death, he comes up out of the grave on the other side, and the gospel writers do much work to tell us that this reality, Jesus' post-death reality or resurrection reality, is one that affirms it's physical, it's flesh and bone, it's sweat and blood, it's earth and dirt, it's fish and chips kind of physical. So the resurrection of Jesus affirms that this world... The physical home that God gave us, it affirms it. It announces that a new creation is bursting forth in, right here in the midst of this one. And that Jesus is the first fruit of this new creation. He's the sign of what's to come. And anyone who's in Christ is buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The question that, that I think is so important for us to understand, or at least ask, is, why do we assume that our post-death, our post Uh, our life-after-death experience will be any different than that of Jesus's. If Jesus is the, the, the second human, the second Adam, and he comes and he dies on a cross, then why do we assume that somehow our post-death experience will be totally and utterly different than that of Jesus's? Physical life here on earth. The resurrection affirms the good and beautiful aspects of God's creation and declares that they will not be discarded, but in fact redeemed. They will be experienced to their fullest in God's new creation. Which means for you and me, sometimes for people of of faith, there seems seems to be this total disconnect between anything that's of this world in an attempt to be more spiritual or an attempt to be more holy. And I want to say the, op- the opposite is true. It means for you and me that we can participate in this, physically, this physical world in a redeemed and a new creation kind of way. This world, this stuff, relationships, food, uh, 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 embrace, kiss, art, creation, beauty, awe, all of it, intimacy. It's not to be discarded or done away with because we're waiting for heaven, something better when we die, but rather to be experienced in a new way, in a way that, which is good in a way that is a, is a foretaste of what it will be when it's redeemed fully. So resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus affirms the world that we live in. Sometimes there's a passage in, I think it's First or Second Peter, where it talks about the earth being you know, caught up in flames. And people think, well, this world's going to burn. It's going to be done away with. And there's going to be some new thing somewhere else, else you know, someday. I think that's a misreading. I think that this world will be restored and redeemed and renewed and made, made all that God intended it to be with God, with Jesus as king and you and I as a part of that. So the last question, what is our role in God's new world then? If this is true, if 1 Thessalonians isn't about being evacuated somewhere else, but it's actually about God's rule and reign coming to earth as it is in heaven, then what's our role in that? And if you look at Revelation 22... Verse 5 gives us at least a place to start. It says, There will be no more night. They will need not the light of the lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever with him. There's other passages in the New Testament that talk about us partnering with, participating in the rule and reign of God in creation. The biblical picture is not one of us going somewhere else, but rather Jesus and the kingdom of earth, kingdom of heaven coming here and us participating with God in that. So what does that even look like? 
I think you can start where the, where the Bible starts. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden to what? Work and worship are the two things. Work and serve are the two words that they're given. So Adam and Eve's role, humanity's role, prior to sin entering the world, is that we partner with God, and we are one with God in relationship, we are one with each other in relationship, and we're one with the world that we live in. That's called shalom, peace, the, biblical, the, the Hebrew understanding of peace. That's where it begins, and that's where it's all headed back to. So if you wonder what will life look like in the kingdom, I think it will look like everything that is good and beautiful and true about you and about this world on an exponential level. Like you can't even imagine how much better it will be. But it's you, it's me, it's flesh and blood, it's this, it's with God as king, not somewhere else. Uh, let me do this. So last, last couple weeks ago, somebody came up to me and they're like, Micah, what exactly do you mean by all this? What are you saying? So I've drawn, I did some drawings for you guys. Are you ready for this? Um, in sum, if you're like, what exactly is happening? What, what are you saying? Boil it down. Here's what I'm saying. The average Christian, if you ask them on the street, you just walk up and you say, what happens after you die if you're a believer? What's the point of the gospel? You live your life on earth, you die, and you either go to heaven or you go to hell. That's pretty much it. And heaven, the understanding of heaven then, is some sort of disembodied experience reality that is elsewhere, not here. And I don't think that the Bible teaches that at all. I think the Bible teaches this, or at least some variation of this. People argue about this into great length and great detail, right? So we're not doing an end times survey here, all right? This is a very brief overview. Life as we know it here on earth. We die, and if you want to call what you experience between death and resurrection heaven, for those who are in Christ, fine. Call it life after death. Call it, uh, Paul says, we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, right? Some people would say that this is like a timeless experience because we're outside of time, so maybe your experience when you die and when your resurrection is actually instantaneous. That's a whole nother like quantum physics conversation. Again, not for today. But if you want to call this life after death, fine, right? What the Bible teaches is that there is, comes a point in Paul, a whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about resurrection, that all will be resurrected, and there will be some kind of final judgment, and then those who are in Christ will see heaven ushered in, and heaven, if you will, the rule and reign, the kingdom of God, will come down and will be our experience here on earth in a new creation, a new formed, a restored, redeemed, remade world that God made good in the beginning and gets back in the end. Now, people will say what happens to everybody else. Some people say, like, total uh, annihilationism. They cease to exist. Some people call it uh, eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. Some people say that you experience essentially the opposite of what you were created for, which is total isolation forever and ever if you were made for a relationship. Again, not going to do that today. Something, right, because we get what we want if we choose life without God here and now, I would argue we get it forever. So I want to suggest that the biblical text is offering a picture that looks a bit more like this, where resurrection is a, like an actual reality and where heaven, the rule and reign of God, comes to earth 
and is our experience as per normal. So one author says, the Bible isn't much concerned about life after death, but life after life after death. And I think that that's right on. So friends, maybe I'll close with this because I think it actually goes right into where we're headed with the Lord's table. I need an assistant. Maybe I should ask for that for the raise or something. I want to suggest that this is the picture, the biblical picture of life after death. It was inaugurated by Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, and it will be experienced, as was for Jesus, for all of humanity who is in Christ. It affirms the physical world that God made. It assumes the transformation and the redemption of our bodies and this world, which is good news for many. And it will be an active participation, a ruling and reigning with God in a world that will be so far beyond our wildest imagination and infinitely better than anything we could ever describe which is why John describes it the way he does in Revelation. Heaven and earth will once and for all inhabit the same space. God's hopes and dreams for creation and humanity will exist. So the invitation is to get in on that now. The invitation is to start practicing for what will be. The invitation is don't miss out on that. Because I think that God honors our choices and God honors our decisions. And if you want life without God now, you get it. And so many people get to the end of their life and realize, I was looking for something that I never found on my own. There was something that I wanted that I couldn't get on my own. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done something and offers this new life here and now. Right here, right now. And more later. So there is hope, Paul says. We don't grieve like people without hope. And communion is at the center of this story. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So Paul says when we do this, we proclaim this story and we proclaim the kingdom until he returns. And so this morning, I'm going to lead us into a time of communion. Um, Before we do that, I'll invite us to a time of silence. If you're new to Awaken, um, we'll invite our kids up and we give them honey and we dip dip a stick in there and we say, may the word of God be like honey on your lips. So if you're wondering what's happening, that's happening. And communion is... For all. It's for anyone. Sometimes people say, if you're a member here, you can take communion here. And I say, if the, if the presence of God is somehow connected to communion, then we should be giving it to everybody and anybody who wants it. So if you want it, it's for you. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and blessed it and said, this is my my blood which is shed for you and a new covenant that's written in my name for you. Whenever you eat of this or drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. Say yes to me again each time you come to this table. Come and get what you need, whether it's forgiveness or healing or encouragement or hope. Come, come, come. So I'll offer a word of prayer and then a time of silence and then um, 
we'll move into a time of communion. So pray with me if you would. God, as we take just a few moments to hear your voice, uh, we do it because we recognize that sometimes you speak in the stillness and in ways that we haven't planned. And so we want to leave space for that. Um, God, as we think about our lives and what you have done, what you have secured, what you have inaugurated and began in resurrection, would you invite us to whatever next step might be? Maybe that's saying yes to you for the first time. Maybe that's recognizing that our work can be done differently, our parenting could be done differently, our experience of friendship could be done differently. Whatever it is, God, would you speak in the stillness of our hearts, God? Here we are, and here you are. Friends, thank you so much for being here, uh, for worshiping with us this morning. Um, I've asked Greg to read a benediction uh, for us, so if you would receive this benediction. Remember that the prayer team is available after the gathering to pray with you and for you. Receive this benediction. May you be reminded that this world was created good, that God intended to redeem and restore it, and that your work and your relationships, your activities, can be done with new creation in mind. May you participate in the kingdom of God today and forever when Jesus returns. Amen. Grace and peace. Amen. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.